Hello and welcome to the First Baptist Church of LaGrange. What an honor it is to have you listening to our church broadcast today. We hope that as you listen along, following in your Bible, that you experience the grace and presence of Christ just as strongly as we do every Sunday in our worship service. May God truly bless you as you listen. I uh, wanted to kind of just start out today in a little bit different fashion, but I wanted to say thank you to all of you kind people who just gave me tremendous feedback from last week's sermon. I mean, it it does my heart good to know when you've been blessed, and thank you for uh, just continuing to pray for me, I mean, as I try to proclaim God's Word. Um, And I I, sometimes people ask me, you know, do you still get nervous? (laughs) I mean, I'm shaking like a leaf even now. I think it's just because I understand the responsibility that I have. And I come in the fear of God and trembling to proclaim yet to you again what God has to say to His people. Man, if, if y'all saw behind me a rattlesnake approaching me, what would y'all say to me? <laughs> Thank you, baby. Hopefully you would say, run, pastor, Run. Right? Uh, Maybe you would say, you know, maybe somebody would say, hey, you don't even need to stop and look back, Pastor. Just trust us. You need to run. I don't think you would stop to tell me what a rattlesnake is. Hey, before you run, you probably want to know the danger you're in. So let me remind you what a rattlesnake can do to the human body. I don't think that's what you're going to do. I think you're just going to tell me to run, right? Hopefully. Some of you, I know... (laughs) I'll be like, hey, Pastor, there's like candy behind you. And some of you may want to do that. That's okay. Um, Here's something that that I think is interesting. Paul, in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 14, his first words to the Corinthians are run. He doesn't take time to explain to them what they're to run from. He says run. He says Flee from idolatry. No, no explanation there. Just, just run. In other words, Paul says, listen, you are in immediate danger. That's what he's saying. Now, you and I might not think so, but idolatry is far more dangerous and deadly than even a rattlesnake. Idolatry is not something that we pay much attention to these days because not many of us are out there making these wooden idols or We don't go down to the little Buddha shop and get a Buddha and rub his belly on our way to work. But I need to tell you this today. I'm speaking from experience. Our hearts are an idol factory. And here's something that I need you to understand. Your heart and my heart will not stand a vacuum. In other words, we are created to worship. And when we don't rightly worship what we were created for, we're going to fill that vacuum with something else. And that is, my friends, called idolatry. When we turn from complete, I mean complete worship of the Lord Jesus, even just a little bit, it won't have to be a lot, but even just a little bit, we will fill the void of turning from Jesus up with an idol. That's what we do. We're so quick to replace the worship of God with the worship of something else. As John MacArthur in his commentary says, idolatry includes much more than bowing down or burning incense to a physical image. Listen carefully. Idolatry is having any false god, any object, any idea, 
philosophy, habit, occupation, sport, or whatever that has one's primary concern and loyalty to any degree that decreases one's trust and loyalty to the Lord, that is idolatry. When we become involved in idolatry in any way, Paul says, you better run. Because there's something worse than a rattlesnake behind you. So I wonder if you would turn in your Bible. It's the 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm going to read verses 14 through 22 today. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 through 22. And again, folks, I'm, I'm here to be your spiritual aerobics instructor, I guess. But no, really, I want you to understand that when God speaks, man, we need to give him full attention and treat his word as if there's nothing in this world like it. So I'm just going to ask you to just stand with me just for the hearing of God's word. If you're tuned in to us online, and even if you're driving your car right now and you're listening to this, I wonder if you might want to pull off to the side of the road and get out of your car Maybe get off your couch and stand with us for the reading of God's Word. He says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as the wise men. You judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing with which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things with the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons. And not to God. And I don't want you to become shares in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We're not stronger than he, are we? May the Lord bless the reading of his word and you may be seated. Paul gives us four reasons to flee idolatry. The first one is, he says, flee idolatry because it's dangerous. Flee idolatry because it's dangerous. Look there back in verse 14. He says, hey, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Well, that would be good if he hadn't have put one word before that, therefore. <laughs> Remember what we preached about last week? You're going to be tempted to do some stuff, right? Remember the week before that, that we have all this prone proclivity to a bunch of sins? You know why we do that? Because it's all about idol worship. And Paul says, when you get off into sin, it's because you're into idolatry. When you get off into temptation, Satan's going to tempt you. The very thing he's going to tempt you with is to turn something into an idol. So Paul says, listen, beloved, flee. It's dangerous for you. But I think it's really cool that he starts out reminding them that they are the beloved. If you've ever received an email from me or if you hear my preaching a whole lot, you'll know that one of my favorite words 
and all the English language is beloved. I say it a lot because the scripture does too. I want you to know today that no matter where you're at and no matter where you find yourself today, that you are loved by God. But as his children today, you need to hear that you are the beloved. You are so loved. So Paul says, even though I know that you're off into this sin, even though I know that you're caught up in this idol worship, you're still loved by God. Did y'all know that? <laughs> Wouldn't it be cool if when we, people were in sin, we talked to them first about how much we love them and how much God loved them, rather than just jump into their sin? Because that's the biblical example. But even though they're somewhat immature in the faith, they've been given incredible wisdom. Therefore, he says, I speak as to wise men. It's it's kind of a play on words, a little bit insulting in some way, because they thought that they knew everything. Contextually, as we've preached to you, you know that. But but Paul is saying, listen, if if you're wise, and I believe you are, then you'd probably want to pay attention to what I'm going to say. So Paul calls them wise men. If they listen carefully, the Spirit will help them judge rightly what he's saying. And he says, if they're wise, you're going to see the danger I'm talking about, and you're not going to hesitate. You're going to flee. Notice that he doesn't start by defining idolatry. He just tells them that they're in danger of it. He knows the sins we're prone to. He knows the temptations that are going to come our way. So in the midst of all that, there's a real enemy, and he's luring us into sin and tempting us, but he's also doing it with idolatry. The fact that Paul tells us to flee tells us that we're in danger. It's not something to play with. It's not something to linger around. It's not something to dabble in. It's something we must flee from. And, and listen, idolatry is not some backwoods bowing before a rock or a tree. Idolatry, simply defined, is allowing anything but God to have first place in my life, intentionally or even unintentionally. That's what idolatry is. When we do, when we give in to that and allow anything else in our lives to have first place other than the Lord Jesus, we're in immediate danger. You're going to get that toward the end. So we must flee, back up, back off, turn around, run away, leave now, scram, get out of there, right? That's what Paul's saying. This is a sense of Paul's command. It's imperative for us to put as much distance between us and idolatry as we possibly can because idolatry is incredibly dangerous. Then the, where we'll spend the most of our time this morning, Paul says, flee idolatry because it's also deceptive. Now, as I did last week, I'm going to take you into the depths of my study and I'm going to give you some things that man were hard for me to get. So I'm going to hit you just for a few moments on a theological underpinning, and then I'm going to come back and give you some theological application. So, so this is going to be a kind of a lengthy explanation, but, but just hang with me because we're headed somewhere, okay? So just, just discipline your mind to really understand because this is deep stuff here. So we're going scuba diving for a few minutes. We're going to be under the water for a while, But hold on, we're going to come up to breathe, okay? Verses 16, Paul begins there. He says, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there's one bread, we who are the many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat 
the sacrifices, shares in the altar. Well, this is crazy. Paul is going to use the Lord's Supper as an illustration to talk about the deceptiveness of idolatry. The cup of blessing that he starts is the, the last cup that was drank at the end of a meal as a final testimony of thanksgiving for all that God had provided. Jesus uses this third cup as a token of special blessing before he passes it to his disciples. This is the supreme cup of blessing, which in turn we bless and are thankful for his death and his burial. Every time we we do this, we do it in remembrance of Jesus. But here, it's interesting because as you study this, he says, isn't the cup of blessing which we bless? That's interesting. It's not the normal word for blessing. The normal word for blessing is found like in the Beatitudes, blessed are, blessed are the meek, blessed are the, the persecuted. That's not the word here which is significant, it's a different word. It's the word eulogy. Wow. So the word eulogy in the Greek is eulogia, and it's made up of a prefix, eu, E-U, which means good, and then the word which we get our word word from, logia, or logos. So then the Really what Paul's saying is, is that we speak the cup of blessing, which we bless. He's saying that it's a good word is really the blessing. And the cup of blessing which we bless, this is the fellowship of the blood of Jesus. So here, he's saying we drink the cup of God's good word about us in the cross of Christ. And in doing so, we say a good word of praise concerning our Lord. Fabulous. He then turns to the bread and he speaks of sharing. He says, and this, oh, we, we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ, and we break it a sharing in the body of Christ. Sharing, you may know this word. It's the word koinonia. You, you've heard that if you've been in church. It means to have in common, to participate, to have partnership with. So when we share in this table, we're spiritually sharing and participating in the benefits and the blessings that Jesus has brought to us. But listen carefully. Because here in this text, the blood and the body that are used here are used as a, as a language device. It's called a metonym. A metonym is a figure of speech which the name of a thing is used to represent another thing of which it is a part. So, in other words, when I say, I was reading Shakespeare last night, what I mean is, is that I was reading a play written by him. The name of the author is used to represent the works that he's written. So, in the Old Testament, blood is often used to represent life. Shedding of blood is used in the New Testament to represent death. In the New Testament, blood is often used to represent Christ's sacrificial death. Death in which physical blood was shed on behalf of all those who trust in him. It was his death, represented by his shed blood, that paid the penalty for our sin and redeemed us. Keep walking with me. Then he says, the bread which we break is a sharing in the body of Christ. The bread symbolizes Christ's body just as the cup does. But his body also represents life. In the Old Testament, the human body was associated with the totality of life, 
with man's humanness. Adam's body was formed out of the dust of the ground. His very name is the same Hebrew root word as earth, Adamah, which we get the word Adam from. So when we share in the body of Christ, we remember and celebrate his humanness, his incarnation, and his death for, our, for us on, on, on our behalf. But something interesting happens. The New Testament makes a special point that Jesus' body was not broken on the cross. John 19.36 says, For the things took place so that the scripture would be fulfilled, that not a bone of him shall be broken. So we have to be careful when we use the euphemism to break bread at the Lord's table. His body wasn't broken. The bread represents Christ's body, but the breaking of the bread does not represent the breaking of his body because that didn't happen. Jesus broke the bread in order to distribute it among the disciples so that he could share it with them. That's the point. It's a sharing of his life. He shared his blood with us. He shared his body with us. So when we eat the bread, we remember Christ emptying himself in order to live among us as a man, his sufferings and his temptations that he identified with us to be our great high priest. So then hear me carefully. And again, I'm not trying to offend anybody in our town. I'm not trying to offend by way of our radio ministry. I'm not trying to offend anyone. I'm just being faithful to teach the word of God. At this point, we need to be very clear about some things concerning the Lord's Supper. This supper is a spiritual experience. This is true, but this juice or this wine in some fashions and this bread are not transubstantiated. What I mean by that is this blood and this bread do not actually become the blood and body of Jesus. It does not happen. It will not happen. It never has happened. Additionally, this blood and this bread is not consubstantiated. In other words, the actual body body and blood come alongside of these elements. See, here's the problem with man's getting into the way of what Jesus instituted is that if this actually becomes the body and the blood of Jesus, every time we take it, Christ is sacrificed again and again. And beloved, guess what the Bible says in Hebrews 9.28? The Bible says that Christ also, having been offered once, did you see that? Once to bear the sins of many. Did you see that? When Jesus Christ was sacrificed on the cross, he was sacrificed once and for all. So I'm going to believe what God's book says about this rather than any tradition that I've been a part of. This always takes precedence, dear friends. So that means that this interpretation and other denominations cannot be correct But yet, it is the very gospel they hold to. Now do you see the problem? 
If that is your gospel, that you have to take this every time to be made right with God, that is no gospel, and that is anathema, Paul says. That's why I preach on this stuff, because that kind of gospel doesn't save anybody. That's why I'm hard on it. Nor can his blood and body actually be consumed by us. What, are we cannibals now? John 6, 52 says, Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? In other words, they were confused. And the reason they were confused is because they were interpreting that way, and that's not what Jesus meant. But in addition, when this supper was instituted, Christ himself passed the cup and the bread. He had not yet been crucified. His blood had not yet been shed. So Christ himself meant for it to be symbolic. So when we partake of communion, the Holy Spirit will use these symbols to sensitize our spirit to become greatly aware of what Jesus did when he gave his body and his blood for us. We do it in remembrance of that happening, not so that it can happen again. We don't eat this or drink this to make us right with God. We don't do this to achieve a blessing or a a sacrament, to receive forgiveness of our sins. That can't do it, friends. We eat this because we have already received forgiveness by trusting in his body and his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. If you need to take this every week to make you right with God, you don't understand justification. Justification happens the moment I put my trust in the fact that Jesus died and bled for me. That moment I am justified before God and all of my sins is forever paid for. If I need this to save me every time I come to it, I don't understand saving faith. If I need this to cleanse me every time I come to it, I don't understand forgiveness and initial salvation. We do this because we are saved, not to be saved. This is worship because we are saved. So two things. We're reminded as we drink the cup, we testify to the common experience of already being saved. And then we're reminded that as we eat this, we are one body because all of us have been what? Saved and put into the body. So verse 17, he says, since there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. Because we are one with Christ and in Christ, we are one with one another. As we come into fellowship with Christ through communion, we come into fellowship with each other in a unique way. That's why there's something special that happens when we do this. We all stand on level ground at the cross, and as forgiven sinners who possess eternal life, there is no doubt a reminder of the unity that exists amongst us when we do this. Verse 18, look at the nation Israel, not those who eat the sacrifices, shares in the altar. When the, Israel, excuse me, when the Israelites sacrificed to the Lord, some of the offering was burnt, as the sacrifice proper. Some of it was eaten by the priest and some of it was eaten by those who offered it. Everyone was involved in the offering with God and with each other. To, so to celebrate and to offer a sacrifice to an idol then, this is where Paul is headed. When I sacrifice something to an altar because of all this stuff of sharing together, then I share with that idol. I share with that idol, that community. I poison other people when I do it with other people. Religious ceremonies, no matter what kind, involve the worshiper with the object of that worship. 
Thus, it is deceptive for believers, followers of Jesus Christ, to participate in any other worship that is apart from or contrary to Jesus Christ. That's why idolatry is so deceptive. Because you think you can go do that and still do this. So deceptive. Now that the theological underpinning is done, let me move to some practical application. First of all, we are deceived into overestimating the power of the Lord's Supper. What do I mean by that? Well, the Corinthians thought that by partaking in this religious ceremony, that they could just go then and live as they wanted. They could go back to their sinful ways. They could go back to their idol temples and, and do things with their friends. After all, personal holiness doesn't matter if I can just keep coming back to Mass every Sunday. Matter of fact, that's why I need to have it every week, because I'm going to do what I want to do anyway, and I need something to make me right. So deceptive. I mean, man, does, does this happen today? <laughs> Listen carefully. The Lord's Supper is not about sinful immunization. It's about spiritual nourishment. Communion isn't about spiritual immunization. It's about spiritual nourishment. It's about intimacy with the Lord, and that intimacy will then keep you from wanting to worship idols. Contextually, look in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 7, because you're going to see what Paul is really saying. But I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, right? He said, I don't want you to be associated with demons. He's saying it again, bookends. He said it up here. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all in the cloud. They passed through the sea. They all were baptized in the cloud and the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. Communion. You, you, you picking this up? But they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and that rock was who? Nevertheless, watch this. Even though they had been to communion, with most of them, God was what? For their dead bodies were spread through the wilderness. Do you see what Paul's saying? He's saying, listen, if you think you can come to this table and it will immunize you against sin when you go back out, you are so wrong. You're overestimating what happens here. This will not keep you from going out there and sinning. It will not do it. These things happen as examples, Paul says. So contextually, we see the deception they're under. They were overestimating the power of the Lord's Supper by thinking if they just ate this food and just drank this drink, God would be pleased with them and that he would spare them from his judgment, even though they continued on with idol worship. This is, this is frighteningly close to the way millions of professing Christians view the Lord's Supper. They think it's a grace dispenser, an inoculation, a sacramental antidote that immunizes against all forms of idolatry. In other words, if I just show up and eat it and drink it, I'm good. Then on Monday, I can just go back into my sinful lifestyle and do what I want to do because I'm good. But remember verse 12 in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he what? Fall. The Lord's Supper does not protect you from the judgment of God if you continue going on worshiping idols because it proves that you never had the Lord as your Lord in the first place. You can overestimate what's happening here and think you are safe. In other words... We can take a very holy thing and substitute this 
for personal daily holiness. That's what we do. A good church experience, a good religious experience, I can substitute that for daily personal holiness. And Paul says, don't be deceived. That's not what this does. Secondly, we are deceived into underestimating the purpose of the Lord's Supper. You see, the Lord's Supper is not this external, automatic impartation of divine protection or grace. It is an experience of personal, spiritual fellowship in Christ. In the eating and drinking by faith, we nourish ourselves on the blessings purchased by Christ. So this supper doesn't help protect us from destruction by making us want to flee idolatry. No, it doesn't do that necessarily. What it does is, look in verse 16. He says, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the body of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? This right here is what will make you want to flee idolatry. Because in the Lord's Supper, we're sharers in something. So what does that sharing really mean? Look in verse 18. Look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? Now, this doesn't mean that they they ate the altar. (laughs) It means that they shared in the benefits of what happened on the altar. On the altar, God removed guilt and forgave sin and makes peace and establishes a fellowship of thanksgiving and love. So then to be a sharer in the altar is to share in all the things that God has done on the altar. So then, when Christ was sacrificed on the cross and he shed his blood and gave his body for us, God was removing guilt and forgiving sin and making peace and establishing a fellowship of of us who believe. So then the purpose of the Lord's Supper is to receive from Christ the spiritual nourishment for something he has already provided. And that's why when we remember what Christ has done, it invokes our heart to love him all the more. And love motivates us not to have idols. So here's the key word again, verses 19 and 20. What do I mean then? This thing, sacrificed idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I say the things with the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I don't want you to become sharers, there's that word again, of demons. It means that we get entangled in their power, we submit to them, we become vulnerable to them. We enter into some kind of fellowship with demons when we do idol worship. So this is the part of the meaning of verse 16. When it says that the cup is a sharing in the blood of Christ and the bread is a sharing in the body of Christ, it means that we get entangled with Christ. We submit to Christ. We are being vulnerable to him and allowing him to have leadership and leeway in our life and to be in complete fellowship with him. That's why we call it communion. So what the Corinthians were underestimating was the purpose, namely, to deepen and strengthen our participation in the benefits of the cross so that we are so nourished by what Jesus is doing, there's nothing for an idol to tempt me with. So when the idol presents itself, I say, I've been well nourished. You don't have anything to offer to me. I'm satisfied in Jesus. Is this making any sense? And the reason this is powerful against idolatry is given in verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the cup of the Lord and the table of demons. Listen, he's saying this this is an impossibility. You can't, but you also won't desire to be involved in idolatry because you're already satisfied. So when I see the real thing that's happening when we partake of this, And my soul gets so spiritually nourished 
when demons come my way with temptations or offer me some sinful alternative, it just simply loses its appeal because I've already eaten. You ever been to somebody's house and they cooked you up some fine meal and they're like, hey, sit down and eat, and you just ate? That's what happens when you come to the table. You get so spiritually full. The enemy didn't have a chance. Remember reading about a man who was desperate for work. He applied to the zoo. He heard that the zoo had some openings. And so they said, well, it's a little unusual, but, but we do have something for you. Our gorilla died some time ago. We haven't had the money to replace the gorilla. So if you're willing to wear a gorilla suit and impersonate a gorilla, you got the job. Well, it didn't feel like it was terribly authentic, but the man figured a job's a job, so he signed on, and after a few awkward days, he began to get in the spirit of the thing, and soon he became one of the zoo's prime attractions. One morning, he was swinging from one vine to the next with too much animation and inversely swung himself right over the wall into the cage next to his, which was occupied by an enormous African lion. The man could feel the lion's hot breath on his face, and he knew that he was a goner. Just out of instinct, he began screaming for help when suddenly the lion whispered, shut up, you idiot, or we're both going to lose our job. (laughs) Can I just tell you today, man, don't fall for the deception. Idols come dressed up as the real thing. But they can't ever deliver what they offer. Flee idolatry because it's dangerous. Flee it because it's deceptive. And then thirdly, flee idolatry because it's diabolical. He says there in verse 19, he says, hey, again, these things sacrificed, the idols aren't really anything, but I say the things with the Gentiles sacrificed, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I don't want you to become sharers in demons. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Do you see it? You see, worse than being deceived, idolatry is just a demonic. He says the things sacrificed, those things that, that you, you give to those idols, they, they have no spiritual effect in the sense of blessing that idol. And they definitely, that idol has no spiritual blessing on you. More importantly, though, pick this up. Idols represent that which is demonic. That's why this is so, so dangerous. Because when we think, man, if if I'm just putting sports above God, it's just kind of like a little bit of a worship problem. No, though, it's totally demonic. Do you see the problem? It's not I'm just making a mistake and don't manage my time well. No, No, you're actually getting involved in the demonic because the demon's behind that. That's what you're being tempted with. That's the whole part of the nature why it's dangerous and it's deceptive because it's demonic. And Satan comes disguised as an angel of light. You have to be so careful with this stuff. Those who sacrifice to idols are really sacrificing to demons. When worshipers believe an idol represents an actual God, Satan sends one of his demons to act out the part of that imaginary God. So that's why when you see people worshiping demons, you're like, that's just stupid. Y'all know nothing happens when you give that food. But you better be careful because Satan gets involved and makes what seems to be impossible possible. He has power. He can do things to even deceive the elect, the Bible says. 
There is never a God behind an idol, but there's always a demon. Demons can exhibit amazing power. And while many pagan or cultic religious claims are fake and often exaggerated, some are very true. Yes, they're true, but they're evil. Much that goes on under the guise of cults, psychics, horoscopes, mediums, etc., is a simple exploitation of the gullible. Many things come true through the work of demons, and demons don't have unlimited power, but they do have power to perform wonders and make enough things come true so that people's false predictions come true. Listen to this. Listen to what the Scripture has already said in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not accept the love of the truth so as to be saved. So, for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. Satan is the prince of this world system, and he rules with the help of demons. So to participate in the corrupt things of this world, especially in idolatry, is to participate with Satan and his demons. Paul's point is that idolatry, when we do it, we become sharers and have fellowship with demons. Thus, a Christian cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. He cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. It's not that we should not. Paul says it's impossible. You cannot do it. You cannot do both at the same time. It will always be one or the other. And when we fellowship with the Lord, you can't fellowship with demons. Christians are not immune from the influence of demons. But when we willingly ignore the Lord's way and his word and flirt with the things of Satan and get involved in idolatry, you open yourself up to satanic influence. And that can go even as far as allowing somebody with a little name tag, riding a bicycle, knocking on your door, or somebody wanting to sell you a magazine subscription to a Watchtower magazine, or calling you to talk about the end times on the phone. When you offer them fellowship and and just sit down with me and let's talk about this, you are inviting satanic influence into your home. There is an unseen spiritual reality behind all sinful behavior. It's the reality of the demonic. Sin is diabolical in nature. And when we engage in sinful behavior, we open our lives up to demonic activity. We give the devil a foothold in our lives. And we can laugh about sinful activity and pretend that it's no big deal. After all, everybody's doing it. And we mock and we we just persecute those narrow-minded and prudish people who make a big deal out of sin. And I'm sure you could find a lot of people to agree that you shouldn't make such a big deal out of sin. But there's one person who doesn't say sin is not a big deal, and that's God. Sin is a big deal. It's a big deal. Because Jesus knows the consequences of our sin and our idolatry and where it leads and how it breaks his heart because that's not what he wants for us. This idolatry will destroy our relationship with Jesus. It'll sap us of our spiritual life. It'll rob us of our joy. It'll open us up to the activities and powers of darkness. It's deadly. That's why we're told to flee told to flee from these things before they destroy us. I remember I was up in Chicago, and this story had come through, and there were many people still talking about this story, but more than 25 years ago, seven residents of the greater Chicago area made an assumption that proved fatal. They all took a dose of extra-strength Tylenol that they had bought from the store that had been laced with potassium cyanide. 
and it killed every single one of them. What they thought was medicine proved to be poison. And here's what I'm telling you today. Idolatry is worship laced with poison by Satan. And what you think you're going to take is going to minister to your soul and make you feel good or satisfy you is actually going to be the very thing that kills you. Flea idolatry is dangerous, it's deceptive, it's diabolical, and very quickly flee idolatry because it's disturbing. As I'm not trying to make more of the Scripture than what the Scripture makes, but look at verse 22. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than He, are we? You want to know something that pushes God's button quicker than about anything, it's idolatry. You want to see the, the, the awesome anger of our God? Just get involved with idolatry. God has a holy jealousy because he has no and will not allow any competition. God is a jealous God. He loves us with a passionate love, and he desires for us to be totally his. Now think about it. If you're married in the room, you would become extremely jealous if your mate showed an interest in somebody else. So because you are spiritually married to the Lord, he gets extremely jealous and moved to anger when we give our hearts to someone else. Think about what God has invested in our salvation through his blood and his body. Think about it. It took nothing less than the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross to purchase our salvation. And because of God's great love for us, Jesus bore himself our sins on the cross. He suffered the humiliation of the cross. He suffered the torture of crucifixion. He suffered the spiritual agony of being cut off from the Father. So considering all that God has done to purchase our salvation, considering all that he's done to bring us in a right relationship with himself, how could you imagine that he doesn't get jealous and move to anger when we cheat on him? He desires us to be totally his. And when we're unfaithful to him by submitting to other things or lesser things, his passion is stirred up and his anger is kindled. And our God is a jealous God. And the Bible says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. Paul warns us not to trifle with God. He says, don't, don't, don't test God on this one. You're not stronger than he, are you? He's making the point. You do not want to try God on this one. So let me tell you how this applies to today. Because in chapter 11, which follows chapter 10 in 1 Corinthians, these people didn't pay attention to what he said. And they partook of the table and listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 28-30. But a person must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For the one who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not properly recognize the body. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number have died. You play around with this stuff. And the scripture says God just might take you out. You're not stronger than he, are you? 
Do you want to provoke him? Is that what we want to do? You may have seen this happen. Because I was at the zoo one time. There's a theme here today. <laughs> we were in this gorilla exhibit, and we were watching those big silverback gorillas. Y'all know those big, stinking things, man? They're huge. Their muscles are everywhere. Well, this one gorilla, he was sitting really close to the glass, and you know how they do. They sit there, and they look at you, and it's just so weird. And he's eating this piece of straw, picking his teeth, his other hand, he's picking bugs off his head. He's eating them. Y'all know how they do. And this little kid was there at the glass, and she just kept teasing this gorilla. She just kept running around provoking this gorilla, ah! just doing all her thing. And she kept on and she kept on. And finally, she turned around to get her parents' attention. And just as she started to turn back, that gorilla said, bam, on that glass. It almost broke the glass. The whole room reverberated, and he stood there doing that. And man, I felt like I needed to get out of town. <laughs> that little kid was absolutely terrified. Matter of fact, today I think she has to be in counseling. <laughs> I'm serious. It scared her. She turned completely white. Here's what I'm telling you that for, because here's what I believe. We only provoke things that we honestly believe won't hurt us. And for many of us, we believe that God won't hurt us. Brothers and sisters, I'm telling you, you will not suffer the wrath of God on your sin because of Jesus, but you will receive His discipline. And I promise you, it is worse than any paddling or whipping you have ever been through in your life Please don't provoke the Lord to jealousy. Flee idolatry. Would the band come? Flee idolatry because it's dangerous, it's deceptive, it's diabolical, and it's disturbing. Idolatry is an offense to God, and it's harmful to others. It defiles those who participate in it and others around them. When you and I, who are believers, participate and let other things take first place in our life other than the Lord Jesus Christ... It pushes unbelievers further away from God. And it also violates your purity before God. Y'all need to know this, that an idol can never help you in any way. So we urge to consider our course of action. I mean, after all, God cares for us. And he's provided that in the death of Jesus. Our motivation ought to be passionately just in love with him. But idolatry still rears its ugly head among us today and Far too many of us take it way too lightly. And so what's happening is, is, here's what I believe. The church of Jesus Christ has lost its power because of our love for idols. But there's good news. The Lord will never ask you to do anything that he doesn't give you the power to do. So today, if he's asking you to kill your idol, he's going to give you the power to do it. God's commands, listen to me, God's commands are never a demand upon you. God's commands are always a demand upon himself. What he commands you to do, he says he will give you the power to do. So it's really him putting himself in your debt in a way. If I tell you to do something and I promise to do it with you and through you and for you, 
you can do it. God says, this is who I am. So I would advise you in these moments as we take and sing of this last song, come to this table, but don't bring your idols with you.